This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. In 1969, half a billion people watched the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. It was the most popular event ever in the history of television. 50 years later, we are watching it again. But how should we tell this story now? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Amy Shira Title talks about Apollo and the community of people who remain fascinated by it and other subjects in space history. Title is a spaceflight historian and the creator of the YouTube channel Vintage Space. She's also the author of two books, Breaking the Chains of Gravity, The Story of Spaceflight Before NASA, and Apollo Pilot, The Memory of Astronaut Don Isley. Amy Shira Title, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So we're recording this during the week of Apollo 11, and uh, you are currently live tweeting Apollo 11 events. That is, for people who don't know what that is, you're offering events from the Apollo 11 mission as they happen in real time, or at least real time as it happened 50 years ago. (laughs) And I was wondering, you know the story of Apollo so well. Is there anything that strikes you as you tweet from this view, this view from the trees, so to speak? Yeah. The reason I started started doing this with Apollo 8's 45th anniversary, so that would have been in 2013. Um, And I really started doing it because every time you you read an article or a book or something about one of these missions, whichever mission, it sounds so awesome and exciting and glamorous. But when you actually look at the timing that it took, it took three days to get to the moon. 
there's a lot of downtime and a lot of boring chatter and a lot of discussion of sports scores and where somebody left their piece of clothing. Um, so I, I really thought that it'd be fun to do it through Twitter to to bring the real humanity down. So when I do these things, it's not about mission events in terms of like, here's the rock, they're at site B or whatever it is. It's more, you know, oh, well, Colin's just lost his toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> the the really mundane human things that we don't really think about. And I, I love finding the moments of complete nothing, no science-ness, you know, when they're just kind of having a chat and doing something. You're like, remember, it was just three guys that went to the moon. It wasn't, it wasn't a movie. It was a day job. <laughs> so, you know, since you're kind of sitting in there in the command module with these guys as you're tweeting – can you actually discern the differences in personality, that sort of thing, you senses do, of humor? Yeah, you do. And it depends on on the crew. It depends on the mission, too. So um, I'll, I'll give them a shout out. Uh, the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal and the Apollo Lunar Flight Journal uh, is a website that NASA puts up. It's, it's curated by a bunch of people who fan, space fans may have heard of, including people like Dave Woods and Frank O'Brien, who I've mentioned on my channel a lot as excellent sources. They, they put together the air-to-ground transcript and also the in-capsule transcript, so what was recorded. So these guys have done – I thank you to them for doing the legwork because <laughs> otherwise it's PDFs and they're really hard to scroll through. So when – you know, it's when the crew's talking amongst themselves and they're not being recorded live to the ground that you get a sense of who they are a little bit more. And um, my favorite point in any mission is when they first get to the moon and they first get to the far side and they're just having that, oh, my God, we're at the moon reaction. And <laughs> then you can sort of see, like, okay, this guy is – maybe getting a bit more excited and the commander's trying to get them all on task a little bit. And um, it is, it is really nice to kind of see the humanity come out when you read it like this. There was an article I read last night on, I think it was on uh, the Atlantic monthly about somebody who was writing a piece on the heart rate of the various members of the Apollo 11 mission and how Neil Armstrong, who was just the coolest cucumber in the world, his heart rate was going crazy in those last few minutes. In during launch or during landing? During landing. Oh, I tweeted their launch heart rates. Their launch heart rates were actually quite low compared to their original, because uh, each of them had flown a Gemini mission ahead of time. And um, they were all had very low heart rates compared to their Gemini flights. Yeah, I do remember reading the first time I did this going over the heart rates at landing, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, there was a lot going on at the moment of landing. God, can you imagine? Also, you're landing on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you're landing on an airplane. There's a lot happening so and i think they had low fuel buzzers going off and they missed their they landing site by a few miles <laughs> I mean, just... yeah they didn't have a totally clear spot so neil's looking for a place that's smooth enough to put down and buzz is calling out the fuel and they're getting the 1201 and 1202 program alarms the computers are booting itself and it's just like okay there's a lot happening right now yeah so uh, you know this week you're really looking at this mission from the perspective of the trees but I'm going to ask you a view from the forest question too. Yeah. You've written a couple of books yeah. on NASA breaking the chains of gravity and mm-hmm. uh, which is about the early history of NASA. Yes. And as well as a book on Don Isley the Apollo 7 astronaut. Yes. Um and these are really kind of lesser known stories of the space age. You have a lot of context for Apollo 11. And I was just wondering this week, as the media is going completely crazy on the Apollo 11 story, are there parts of the story that you feel are missing? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I always joke that like context is my favorite thing. I'm a trained historian, so context is my happy place. And yeah, that's missing from so many things. And, you know, it's we have this amazing ability to just forget what else was happening in the 1960s and talk about Apollo as this amazing thing, but no one talks about, or at least I haven't been seeing too many references to, you know, the 53% approval rating Apollo had when Neil yeah. Armstrong stepped on the moon, not when it launched. Hmm. The fact that it was costing a huge amount of money and, you know, so was the Vietnam War. There's there's a lot of things. And, and the 60s were an incredibly, incredibly turbulent decade. And NASA was really kind of operating in a vacuum. And I think nothing illustrates it more than, you know, you look at pictures of mission control for Apollo 11 and they're wearing their white shirts buttoned up with the black skinny ties. And you look at the rest of America and no one looks like that. I mean, this huh. is yeah. if you ever needed evidence that NASA's kind of in a bit of a time capsule, mm. they look like the early 60s while the rest of the world is it, like has gotten into the hip, you know, more hippie and early 70s style-wise. I mean, there's just there's all these little things where you're like you guys are a little bit stuck in the past because you're just focusing on this one thing. Um, so I think we have a way of forgetting that context when we write about it now. So yeah, that's context. a great point. <laughs> I had uh, I had Neil Marr on a couple months ago who wrote uh, Apollo in the Age of Aquarius. I think it yeah. came out last year. And he kind of makes a similar point about how this is a really buttoned up group. And yet at the same time, this stuff that they're doing, these, these uh, photographs from space are the inspiration for all of these other yeah. groups of people and that context that we miss. I, I was wondering, you... You started Vintage Space uh, as a blog in 2010, yeah. and it expanded really rapidly. And then you transitioned to a YouTube channel. Yeah. And you currently have a quarter million followers on Twitter. You have more than that. That's a number of subscribers on YouTube. I mean, this is an incredible community of people that you have created for your work and for this history. Do you get a sense for who your community is? Um, yeah, I, I can see some of my, my analytics, which is, you know, what I use. It's, it's tough between kind of who's consuming your media and who talks to you. Cause you know, it's the, the great thing about the internet is that it gives all the nerds a place to get together and get nerdy about something. <laughs> in my case, old things in space. It also gives everybody on, on the internet a voice who maybe shouldn't have a voice. <laughs> my content is very strong with surprise, surprise men who watched the moon landing as boys. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. definitely there's definitely like I hit the nostalgia factor which you know is not surprising I would like to see a larger number of kind of young people who are learning want the history and the context around what's happening now in space which what is also what I try to do, you know. Everyone's excited about what SpaceX is doing and what Blue Origin is doing and super critical of what NASA is doing, so I like to come in and say, well, Remember when this happened in 1967? Of course you don't. So let me tell you about it so that when you react to the SpaceX news, now you have the history of huh. engine failures on a launch or whatever the issue is. You know, there's always there's always some connection that I think you can look to the past to understand the present a little bit more. So what is that like to be a woman scholar with an audience that you just said skews really male and kind of old? I mean, is that difficult or do you feel that that's not a problem at all? 
I think because that has always been the demographic in which I've worked, just by virtue of being in history and then specializing in space history, it's sort of like, well, this is just what it is. Yeah. Um, it's a, it is a little bit weird when, you know, I, I will see pictures of panels that I'm on and I'm like, I am definitely representative of a different demographic here. Yeah. But, but there's also that weird thing where being freelance, you know, I, I work out of my home with my cat, Pete Conrad. <laughs> so day to day, it, it doesn't really feel like much. It feels like I just kind of do this little thing in the corner of my, my own little corner of the world and people like it on the internet and that's great. Yeah, it's it's kind of isolating in, in, a, in a nice way sometimes. <laughs> I, I was thinking also, you, you kind of have a foot in both worlds. You've got this incredible audience, which probably is also very diverse in terms of interest, these people who are interested in space. Mm -hmm. But you're also a scholar, and you have a background in the history of science. You've written for academic presses. And I was wondering how that felt, because you know my experience being an academic who's interested in science communication and popular, you know, public outreach yeah. is that sometimes you can get beat around the head and shoulders for doing that kind of work. Yes. And I, I was wondering <laughs> if that you feel like that's an occupational hazard for you. I think so a little bit. I think there's, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of things at play here and this is going to, this is, we're risking going down a whole other rant right now. Um, it's okay. Rant. You know, it's, it's fine with me. <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, the reality is academics are very guarded over their words and when mm -hmm. you do what they do publicly, they don't like you. So I do have some people in the academic world that see me as betraying my training or something. I don't really get it because I thought the whole point of being an academic is ultimately to teach people things. You know, I, I left academia because I didn't want to be fighting for the one liberal arts job in history of science that would come up yeah. in a decade and have to be in some 4,000 person hippie town. I, I just, it wasn't for me. So I decided, well, let me take all that and teach the humans. And I joke that, you know, science communication exists because engineers and academics don't speak English. So you know, there's definitely that weird line of I do bring insane research to everything that I do, and I'm not perfect by any stretch. I definitely miss, I call them speakos when I say the wrong date, like a typo, but spoken. Um, you know, that, and that happens. Um, but and you probably hear about it with 50 different comments on oh, your Oh, yeah. On your page, and, then, right? and then all of a sudden, I won't hear myself say the wrong year. It happens, especially when I'm like, I'm just finishing up a new book. I still go to write the date on forms and I start with 19 instead of 2000 because I am living in the 30s right now in my head. You know, it's it, it's these things where I don't even notice it. And people are like, oh, how can I trust anything you ever say? I'm like, because you've never said something wrong by accident. It's this. So you in a weird way, it's like being held to an academic standard. But the academic people don't want you because you're not academic enough. It's a very strange balance. And that's where I'm sort of like, well, I'm kind of over this on both camps. And I'm just going to do what what makes me happy. Do you get a sense for? Yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say. I speaking of new my upcoming book, which I can't go into too many details about yet. Um, but the the work cited is, I don't know how many pages, but there's like two thousand footnotes in this thing. So it's one of those things where I I know that people are gonna come at me and be like, "Where did you get any of your research?" And I'm like, literally the two hundred pages of footnotes, huh. <laughs> which I'm insisting we, those are not leaving that book because it's I, I did a ton of work on that and you're gonna see it. <laughs> I mean, that, that was my next question, which is, if you feel like you're getting pushback from academics, 
but you yourself have said that you're fascinated with context. It's the context stuff that most interests you. And that's usually the thing that academics get annoyed at. They get annoyed at uh, stories that have been sheared of, of context. So then what are they getting mad at you about? I don't really know. I want my writing to feel more fun mm-hmm. than reading a paper, but still be as informed. And I think people people will look at it and say, "Well, you know, I do oversimplify things. I round up my numbers." If we're, if you know, if I'm writing a fifteen hundred word piece for X outlet, they don't need to know the details of what the twelve oh one and twelve oh two program alarms. So I'm going to say they got a series of program alarms that forced a reboot. For the average person, that's more than enough. And, you know, the, the, the pedants are going to be like, well, you didn't say what that is because you don't know. Therefore, we can't trust you. It's like, or I'm not writing for you. I'm writing for the person who's never thought about program alarms and rebooting a computer the way you reboot your laptop every day when we're talking about going to the moon. I'm trying to expand the average person's horizons a little bit. Right. Do you feel that? And there- that's kind of where I where I land. Do you feel that there are also um, issues in the way that Apollo 11 is being covered? I mean, you said already that you feel like there's not enough context, but I was recently reading um, some tweets by a colleague of mine, a terrific scholar, uh, Audra Wolf, who's written about uh, the Cold War and especially um, the space race and how certain documentaries have, you know, continued to tell the Apollo story as being essentially a kind of all male story, or that they are not really citing, let's say, either women participants or women scholars in the retelling of that story. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. I'm very aware um, that there's a a lack of female perspective in a lot of these things. And I, I think in part, that's a product of the time. And that's kind of cycling around a little bit. Space was male dominant in the 60s. You know, you have a handful of women who are being highlighted for doing their jobs. In my in my experience from the people I've met, more little boys watching the Apollo 11 landing than little girls watching it who then were really inspired. Um, and it could be because, you know, representation matters. Um, I mean, when I read about it, I wanted to be like them anyways. And I was a girl and I didn't, I never even thought about the fact that it was a bunch of dudes. I just thought it was a bunch of <laughs> awesome people. So, um, so, you know, then the, the next generation, you have all these, you know, men growing up who are recalling their experience and it's the male perspective. So you end up with this very male dominant sort of second generation of Apollo. It's a little, it can become a bit of a boys club and it does continue a certain narrative, which makes finding the standout people more difficult. And they're in there, but you do have to dig a lot. And I think, you know, the the other thing too is, the people we look at, the people that we celebrate most are the astronauts. I mean, they were rock stars of the age. And by virtue of NASA's rule of astronaut qualifications stipulating test pilots, that ruled out women in the 60s because there were no female military test pilots. So yeah, again, you just have this reinforcement of the, you know, all male narrative, which is starting to break down. But I think as long as we focus on the the engineering elements, how exciting it was, how inspirational it is, it can be done as a human story that can inspire sure. anybody as opposed yeah. to leaving people out. It makes me think a little bit about the 19th century and Arctic exploration, which was kind of the subject of my first project. And I had kind of assumed since these expeditions were almost entirely male and that they were written about back home by men and it seemed Mm -hmm. so male dominated 
that I kind of assumed that these stories were not of interest to women. And then when I did this archival work on Robert Peary and Elisha Kane and some other explorers, I found just like hundreds of letters from women and girls to these explorers, you know, who are so fascinated in their work and who are going to the lectures and writing about it. And then I, I kind of, the reason I'm saying this is because I wonder with the Apollo story, whether, is it a question of how this, how this is being reported? You know, in other words, is it like, in fact, were women inspired by the story, but no one's really asked them or, you know, they assume that it's a kind of little boy story, as you put it. I mean, I don't even know how you'd get at that question. Mm. I just wonder, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm. I've I've done a, a fair bit of digging through various archives, um, and over the years, um, not specifically looking at you know public reaction to Apollo Eleven, but the beautiful thing about any kid who ever sends anything to a sitting president or to NASA is that that's all archived. So if you've ever written a letter to, <laughs> to the president in the second grade, that exists in an oh, archive so somewhere, and I've dug through some of those, which is so fun. Are those at the presidential libraries? Yeah, they, they would be. It depends on how they're exactly cataloged. Um, and it, I don't know exactly how everyone does it. But recently I was in the Nixon archives just out of curiosity looking for mm. some tidbits on Apollo 11 and um, came across, I have to tweet it out, I forgot about this until right now, a drawing that a, uh, I think an eight-year-old boy had done of Apollo 11 on the moon and sent it to Nixon. <laughs> and I, that one stood out because it was a really cute drawing. But there, I've seen in kind of pawing through those just as many letters from girls oh, interesting. as boys sort of asking, you know, how do I be an astronaut? Can I do this? I want, you know, kids asking for information of, about the space agency. And huh. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to speculate a little bit here because I haven't done like a deep audit of this. But sure, um, yeah. the, the letters typically seem to be fairly split that I remember reading between genders uh from younger kids and then you do get a bit more of a drop off of women potentially. Oh, that's so interesting. Age. Wow. There're definitely there's definitely a lot. I've I've recovered a lot from a few archives of women hmm. asking about qualifications for for working with NASA at the college age, which is, you know, what courses do I take to finish out high school or what do I take in college to put myself on that track? Because again, in the 60s it was totally new, so no one really knew what to do to yeah. get in that position to work with NASA. Um, but you know, it's, it's similar to today and why I think it's, why I think I've noticed that drop off and I, I might be projecting because I know it happens now that girls tend to lose interest in science. There's a very even split. Everyone loves science when you're eight. And then as soon as you're about 14, the interest huh. shifts a little bit and, and women do show a slight drop, but it's also that you know, teachers don't encourage girls as much as they do boys in science it's typically kind of taught in a male dominant way yeah well that's and so I interesting say, i say that from experience of my teacher friends i all of my education was done in canada so i can't really say much about from my own experience but people i know in education here have have told me that that is a a, a bit of a trend that they've noticed mm. so you also in addition to your historical work um on your youtube channel you do talk about you kind of weigh in on some contemporary nasa questions such as yeah. the exploration of Mars, um, robotic exploration. I was wondering what you think about, let's say, for example, the big, I, I'm just, I just interviewed um, Jake Robbins uh, this week, where we did, I guess, a kind of a joint uh, podcast on the question of human exploration of Mars. I was wondering if you had um, thoughts about that. Yes, many. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I, I think that's probably this... too broad a question, but I guess I guess I what I mean <laughs> is is the yeah. Um, yeah the the kind of the controversy I would say about let's say robotic versus human exploration of Mars. Yeah. I think I think we were looking at it wrong. I mean, this is totally me personally as an individual, uh, not representing any group or company. I I just don't think we're quite ready for human missions to Mars. Um, the last I heard from engineers that I've that I know, we still don't really know how to deal with the issue of radiation in space for two years. We don't really know what to do about bone density loss and how to keep humans alive that long. Um, I don't know that we really know how to land a payload as heavy as a multi-human crewed vehicle yeah. with all of the propellant to return on Mars. Because you know you've got, I think with Curiosity data, it was something like seven. It's seven minutes from entering the atmosphere to landing. Um, even with a parachute, like you, you need a parachute to unfurl and inflate, but it won't do that at a certain size on Mars because the atmosphere is so rare. Um, yeah, there's, there's straight up engineering problems that we, you know, why, why are we so fixated on Mars? And I think it comes back to this. We're fixated on Mars because we have this, this heritage of Apollo that's forcing us to be fixated on Mars. We sort of have this idea of we went to the moon, we did this amazing thing now 50 years ago, so why haven't we gone anywhere? And and here's where context matters <laughs> because we didn't do it just for the sake of doing it. We did it because it was a war. Like We have to not forget that. Um, and it cost a crap ton of money. Um, I think the final figure in 1973 was $28 billion dollars. Um, which adjusted for inflation is something like two hundred and eighty-eight billion. I looked that up this morning. Um, that's a lot of money. I mean, people yeah. freaked out that Curiosity cost two billion dollars. Do you know how much Americans spend on homeopathic medicine every year? <laughs> Seventeen billion dollars. If everyone went to one less movie a year, we could have a flagship Mars mission every year. I mean, that's the reality of how much money we're not putting in our space program, and yet we want to do these big things. So I think we need to to seriously look back at why we want to go to Mars so badly and then realistically say, what's the right way to do it? Because doing a crash program like Apollo is not is not the way forward. If we want to do anything that lasts, I think it needs to be, I would like to see, I mean, you mentioned Arctic exploration. I think that's a great model. Mm. You know, let's do something ISS-like, let's make it for science, for humanity, not based on a country's rule, and and keep it about science, not about prestige. But I'm also an idealist, and I get that. <laughs> Given the, the knowledge that you have of the Apollo program, you know, I was thinking that recently, I think uh, Vice President Pence has talked about putting American astronauts back on the moon within five years, yeah. which to me sounds completely impossible but i was wondering yeah. what you thought of that well show me the rocket yeah right, yeah. right. <laughs> that's my question yeah. no i think i think um everyone wants to have their kennedy moment like that i make a grand pro- proclamation and then magic happens and then it gets done I, I again i don't work for nasa i don't know what's going on i don't know if spacex is private i have no idea what's going on there but again space is hard space is trying to kill you a lot of the things that these people are saying, we should do this, we need, here's the deadline. It's like, well, either you have to fund a ton of money into this to get it done, or you have to have realistic expectations. And so many of these things are like, I mean, weren't we supposed to have Orion human mission to Mars two years ago? Or human mm-hmm. mission to the moon two yeah. years ago? I mean, these things constantly slip because it's, it's hard. 
And we need to stop making this like in five years proclamation and just say, let's lay the foundation for something that will last. Mm. Amy Shura Title, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website, podcast links, and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase at gmail.com. See you next week.